I'm going to read from today's passage on which today's teaching is uh, based. It comes from Hebrews chapter 12, and I'll be reading verses 28 through 13, verse 9. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and today, and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. And this is God's word. We've come to the end of the book of Hebrews. And uh, it's a long journey uh, because we started late summer of the past year. And we've been saying that the book of Hebrews is about a group of people who have been facing suffering, lots of difficulties, so much so that they've begun to shrink back on their faith. They began to shrink back, look away, turn away from the faith. And the writer of the book of Hebrews gives, uh, gives them, gives us, really, something that helps us face our brokenness, something that, gives us, that helps us to face the broken and harsh realities of life. Every chapter prior, up until this point, he walks us through the Old Testament and he reminds us of who Jesus Christ is. He says, you got to look to him as your foundation. you got to look to him as your security. It's the only way you're going to be able to endure suffering. But notice here, chapter 13. When you get to chapter 13, there's no real teaching about Jesus here. Up until 13, every passage points to how Jesus Christ is surpassing all of the hopes that we had as we looked in the Old Testament. you got to look to him. But chapter 13, he all of a sudden turns his attention to looking towards other people, how you treat people, and why is that? Now, what we're told here is if you're suffering, you look at chapter 13 and just look at the base understanding of 13. Here are people who are suffering, enduring all kinds of hardship and persecution. And what we're really told here is that if you are suffering, you're never going to make it in life without real Christian community. You're never going to make it in life without the church. And this passage tells us three things. It's going to tell us the importance of Christian community, the radical nature of Christian community, and the power to become a part of Christian community. The importance of it, the radical nature of it, and then the power. How do you become a part of Christian community? First, we're going to look at the importance of this. Chapter 12, verse 29, the author says, God, our God is a consuming fire. He's talking about the presence of God. 
And in other words, what he's saying is what's at the heart of the universe, if you look all the way at the core, the heart of the universe, it's the all-surpassing Shekinah glory of God, that fiery presence of God that we see in chapter 12. Now, why does he say that God is a fire? Because at the heart of God, there's a brilliance. At the heart of God, there's a beauty. At the heart of God, there's a light. At, at the heart of God, there's a glory. And what I mean by that is at the heart of the universe, there's an all-surpassing beauty and brilliance and love and joy that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they have for each other. So much so that you can't control it. You can't contain it. It's like a fire. It's a fire. That's what we're designed for. We're designed to have that glory pass into our lives. Every human being has been built and designed to stand in the presence of God, to adore Him, to praise Him, to glorify Him. In fact, that's why we're here. That's what we're worshiping. When we worship, that's what we're doing. And the author says, it's with reverence and awe that we do that. We call that worship. When you sit in front of a campfire, nowadays, the, the big thing is to sit in front of a fire pit. When, you're, when you have a fire pit, you're sitting in front of a fire pit, there's a brilliance. There's a light. There's a glory. There's a beauty. There's a power there. You know it. But in order to enjoy that beauty, in order to enjoy that brilliance, you have to treat that fire with a certain respect. Why? And that's because fires are dangerous. They're dangerous because of what makes them beautiful. They're dangerous because of what makes them brilliant. They're dangerous because of what makes them powerful. They're explosive because of the brilliance, because of the heat. The author says, we worship God with that reverence and awe. Every beauty you admire, that's the warmth that you're looking for. Every time you look at your bank account, and you want more, that's the security that you're looking for. Everything that you accomplish and that sense that you get when you accomplish something, that's the glory that you're really trying to see. That's the glory that you're really trying to experience. Every time you're looking for that big home in your life, that's the rest that you're looking for. You see that? The truth is nothing else is going to satisfy your soul because at the heart of God, that's what we're designed for. That's what we're designed for. That brilliance, that glory, and it's all surpassing. We've seen for the past 12 chapters, it is all surpassing. Now remember this, when God's glory came into Sinai, we saw this last week in chapter 12, when God's glory came down on Sinai, it was terrifying. It was traumatic. It was actually fatal. So the first problem is, how? How do you worship God in his presence? Because at Sinai, it was terrifying. It was traumatic. We want this brilliance. We need this beauty. But that presence is all-consuming. Our God is a consuming fire. That's what we see in verse 29. It's a fire. It's dangerous. We need to handle it with care. Now, chapter 13, verse 9, right at the end of this passage that we read, it says, don't be strengthened then by ceremonial foods. Don't be strengthened by these rituals. That's how we used to worship. That's how we used to treat this, these things with care. In the Old Testament, in the second half of the book of Exodus, all the way into that book that probably many of us have not read. It's the book of Leviticus, right? It teaches us how the ancients worshipped, what they ate, what they wore. Why? Because in Moses' time, you got in by doing everything right. Chapter 12 says that's the old way. Now in the presence of God, now that presence of God, that glory, that brilliance, that beauty can pass into our lives by grace, we receive it before you worked, before you earned. You felt like you had to work, before you felt like you had to earn. Now that presence of God, even then there was grace. 
fact, the Old Testament is all about grace. But he says now, in a palpable way, in a real way, it may be a taste, it may be a glimpse, but it's really that you get to sense the fullness of that presence of God in your life. It passes right into you right now. That's what he says. And so chapter 12 ends with, that's why we can worship God with reverence and all. What does it mean to worship God now? What does that mean? How do you worship God today in our lives? And the answer is this, chapter 13, verse 1. Love one another as brothers and sisters. That's what he says. He says, before you relied on ceremonial rituals, today, how do you worship God with reverence and awe? How do you treat the beauty of God with care? How do you treat the brilliance of God with awe and with reverence? Love one another as brothers and sisters. Verse 2, be hospitable to strangers. Verse 3, remember people who are suffering. Get into their lives as if you are suffering. That's what he says. That looks like social justice to me. I mean, that's what he's saying. In other words, get plugged into a radical Christian community. He doesn't say get plugged into radical Christian culture. A lot of us mix up the two. We think that getting involved with the culture of a church, getting involved with the, with the social culture of the church, that's what it means to be involved in community. That's not what he's saying. The way we worship God right now is not through rituals, it's not through observances, but deep practice, a deep practice of Christian community. That means it's not enough to practice holiness individually. You practice the grace of God through radical new relationships in your life. Relationships that are going to transform your life, shape your life. Between brothers and sisters in the, with neighbors out in the city. So it's not just inside but on the outside because he clearly says, even think about your fellow prisoners, people who are not here, people who are in captivity, people who are oppressed, people who are suffering. As if you yourselves are suffering. It's radical. It's radical then. It's radical now. Before Jesus went to the cross, what was he doing? Oh, the answer is we say, well, well, he was teaching people. He was preaching. He was performing miracles. Yes. But why was he doing that? And the answer is this. Jesus Christ, he wasn't doing that to show his power. I mean, if he wanted to show his power, he could have done a lot of other things that were absolutely remarkable. But it's totally out of sync with his character if he did that. What was he really doing? He was creating a new society. He was creating a new community. He was bringing in a new administration. One that's going to model and reflect the kingdom of God. So what were the miracles? What were the miracles? It's actually restoration. If you think about the miracles, they weren't incredibly, I mean, they were miracles. But at the same time, he could have done a lot more. Why did he do the things that he was doing? Think about the things that he was doing. Blind people get to see. Paralyzed people were able to get up and walk. Hungry people were able to eat. You actually think about what that is. It doesn't feel, it doesn't, you, don't, you don't get the sense that there's anything incredibly remarkable about that. What was he doing? He was taking the brokenness of society and he was restoring it. He's restoring society. He's taking everything that's wrong with the world and he's bringing the kingdom of God into that world and he's restoring it, making it a new creation. He's building a new society. He's building a new people. That's what he's doing. If you think about it, the miracles weren't incredibly special except for the fact that the purpose was not to prove anything so much as to point to a new society that is to come. Jesus taught, you are a city on a hill. You are sheep. You are a body. He's talking about organic community. Organic character. It means if you just come to service, if you're just coming to service and you're not in your daily life, 
If you're not in your personal life, part of a deep, intimate community with other people who are also experiencing the grace of God in their lives, you're not really worshiping God. You're not fully worshiping God. That's what this means. In a sense, chapter 13 is a fuller version of Leviticus, that book that we often avoid, taught the ancients how to worship. Chapter 13 is really a fuller version of that, how to live. Leviticus taught people how to live as God's holy people. Hebrews chapter 13 is what? You want to live with God's holy people? You'll never fully do that unless you're part of a radical Christian community. That's what he's saying. So what is it? What is this radical nature of the Christian community? Verse 1, he says, keep on loving each other. The word that's actually used there is Philadelphia. What is the word Philadelphia? What does it mean? It's a city of brotherly love, right? He says, practice brotherly love. Now, that sounds very plain, but it's actually very radical then, and it's very radical now because what he's saying is, all of us, we are family. Think about this. Many cases, siblings, your siblings are, not, are people that you don't necessarily always like because they're not always like you. They sometimes have different values. A lot of times they have very different personalities. But because they're your siblings, there is this unconditional commitment that you have for them, towards them. You didn't choose them. You didn't choose them. If you, chose, if you could choose your siblings, a lot of you wouldn't have chosen the siblings that you have. But there's this bond that you have with them. But think about this. It doesn't matter where you are spiritually. It doesn't matter how well you're regarded. Your siblings know who you are, Right? Your siblings know you. There's this transparency with your siblings. There's this intimacy that you don't share with anybody else in the world. There's this lasting bond, and it's real. It's a real bond. So what's the author saying here? He's saying, you want to worship God right now in the context of grace? You have to love one another in the church as brothers, as family. That means you have to be a family. You have to be transparent like a family. You have to share your possessions like a family. Brothers share the same home, they share the same inheritance, the same claim to the wealth and power and the status of the family it means your wealth becomes their wealth. That's radical. It means your resources become their resources. That's radical. It means your space, that private space that we in the Western culture like to cling on to, your private space becomes our space. That's radical. It's a radical view of community. It was then, it is now. That means that if you've ever experienced the grace of God in Jesus, race doesn't matter. That's what that means. Race doesn't matter. It can't matter. We're brothers. In fact, the distinctives is what makes it beautiful. The distinctives is what makes it dynamic. It's not to convert people into one type of race or another type of race. It's actually to become a new society, a new race, a new people. That's what it is. Radical view of community. It doesn't matter what culture you are. It doesn't matter what kind of education uh, you have. It doesn't matter what status you have. It doesn't matter how different you are. They are your brothers by grace. You didn't earn it. They didn't earn it. You didn't, you didn't work for it. They don't have to work for it. Don't make people work for it. You come together by grace. There's a certain kind of commitment. There's a certain kind of bond. There's a certain kind of openness or giving that comes with that. But here's the biggest thing. See, we live in a Western culture, right? I just mentioned that. And that means that we believe, if you're, if you're part of a Western culture, your philosophy of life really is that you're a product of your own choices. 
You are a product of your, what you determine for yourself. You've got to grab life. You've got you to go self-discovery. That's what the Western culture is about, right? But mature people, truly mature people don't think like that. Western civilization says you are a product of your own choices, but if you're really growing, if you're really maturing in a spiritual manner, people don't think like that who are maturing. Today you hear, well, I wanna, what about me? I want to be my own person. Let me be my own person. But look, at, look about this. S- some of you, you screwed up badly in life. You made some big mistakes already. You made some bad choices. Some of us, we have lots of regrets because we made bad choices in life and we regret those things and we feel like we're trapped in those regrets that we have. And so what do we do? We beat ourselves up regularly. We beat ourselves up. Why? Because you think, you want to believe that you are a product of your own choices. And you're screwed up so you can't escape. But mature people don't think like that. Mature people realize that, yeah, on one hand, you may have made mistakes. On one hand, you believe that, you know, those, you have to own those mistakes. Sure. But mature people believe and realize that you are a lot more a product not that the product, not that the community determines who you are or makes who you are, but you are a lot more influenced by your family and your community than you think. In fact, your family is probably the single greatest shaping influence in your life. They may not determine, your, they may not have determined you in your makeup, they may not have determined your choices, right? But they are definitely much more influential than any single choice that you've made and your educational makeup or your status or anything like that. No one has shaped you more than your family. And that's why it's profound here that the author says, you are a family. You are a family. You should be shaping each other like a family. You should be getting into each other's lives like family. That's what the author is saying. The values of the church the practical aspects of the church should be a lot more influential in your life than you believe it is. Think about this, right? If you're part of a corporate basketball league or, you know, some hackathon or some, some book club, they all have coaches. They all have facilitators, right? They all have teams, right? They all have small groups, right? But, and they all have some kind of influence. Your coach, and if you're in a basketball uh, league, your coach is going to tell you how to improve, how to supplement whatever skills you have to get better, right? But that influence that they have in any one of those specific groups is very, very narrow. Think about this. If you're running drills, and while you're running drills, coach blows his whistle, pulls you over, yanks your jersey, pulls you over. We're in the middle of the NCAA tournament right now, right? Can you imagine if, you know, UNC, the coach, you know, Roy Williams pulls over a player, calls a timeout and says, I want to know, why are you dating that girl over there? You know, I know she's standing up in the stands over there. Why are you dating that girl? You know, are you sleeping with her? Do you think that's right? Do you think that's the right thing to do? You would say, if you heard that, you would sit there and say, whoa, 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 whoa. You coach basketball, right? I never said you can come into my life. That's what you would say. There's boundaries here. That's what you would say. You would say, uh, this is, you're crossing a line here, right? This is basketball. We live in a time where uh, people are marrying a lot later. And they spend an inordinate time on their social life, and in their work. And what happens? We have a lot of Christians eating with a lot of non-Christian coworkers, hanging out with them. Nothing wrong with that, right? But what happens is when you, the more you spend time with any group of people, that influence, it's inevitable. The influence is inevitable. And what happens is uh, the, the values that are embedded in that influence easily creep in. 
So it's going to creep into your dating life. It's going to creep into your sex life. That influence is inevitable. And, and in the same way, the author here is saying your church is a family. Your church should be that intimate in your life. The love that you have for Jesus should be shaping one another. That's what it, calls, that's what it means to be intentional. No one has chosen this. We're all here by grace. No one chose in many ways. If you could choose, if you were not a part of the church, and if you could choose five friends that you could hang out with regularly, most of us at the start would never have chosen the people that we've become connected through the church. Most of us, D.A. Carson, famous theologian right now, right? He says what? The church is made up of natural enemies. Most of us would not get along. Most of us would not choose to be friends with the other person. It's intentional community. What does it mean to be an intentional community? You're choosing to give your friendship. It's by grace. They're not earning it. You're choosing to give your time. You're choosing to give of your resources. That's the meaning of the tithe. That's the meaning of offering. You're choosing to let people in, and you're choosing to get into other people. It's messy. It's very messy sometimes. It's going to make you messy. If you hang out with a lot of messy people, if you hang out with a lot of broken people, you're going to get messy. You're going to get broken. That's what's going to happen. You see that? That's what happens when you love somebody. That's what happens when you love. You eat together, you play together, you work together, you study together, you argue. It gets messy. That's how you shape one another. When you're not intimate with somebody, you don't fight a lot. In fact, the overriding value of people who are not very intimate, right, a casual relationship is to avoid fighting, right? It's to just maintain a casual uh, relationship with somebody, right? That's what we say. Right? The greater the intimacy, the greater the fighting. Right? Husbands, wives, you know that. Right? The greater the intimacy, the greater the fighting. Some of you have children. The greater the love, the greater the anger sometimes. Right? That's what happens. You're going to open up about your problems. You're going to share things. You're going to decide on things together. That's what happens. It takes a lot of time. But you have to be committed to that. Now, some of you come to church every week. But if you haven't thought about giving up your privacy, if you haven't thought about accountability, if you haven't thought about giving up and sacrificing resources, you're really just a part of culture, Christian culture. You're not part of a new community. You're not part of a new community of Christ. And that's the reason why you're not changing. Some of you have been growing up in the church and you say, why am I not changing? I feel like I'm the same person I've been for the last 10 years. You know why? Have you opened up your privacy to another person in the church? Have you held yourself accountable to another person in the church? Have you let that person speak into your life? You say, whoa, 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 I don't know you that well. Have you given the thought that you have to start somewhere and let people in and choose to get into their lives? Most people today talk about accountability for leaders. They talk about accountability for pastors more than ever before. We see it in the news. We see it everywhere, right? And the truth is, I can't think of uh, uh, anybody that's more accountable in the church than a pastor, right? Most pastors, at least. It's our modern skepticism that makes it cool to critique a pastor, you know? Let me ask you this question, because pastors have many, many different layers of accountability. If you know anything, 
uh, and even in the structure of our church, there are many layers that are visible and probably not visible to you that a pastor is accountable to. Let me ask you this. How many layers of accountability do you have in your life? Have you asked yourself that question? How many layers of accountability do you have? How many people speak into your life that actually can speak in with consequence in your life? That's accountability. That's accountability. A lot of us say, well, I'm not really growing in a church. You know why? It's because you haven't held yourself accountable. That's the reason why you're not changing. You haven't opened your life up in that way. You haven't sacrificed. You haven't given to, to the point where it hurts. Who critiques your thoughts? Every week uh, we have, or every, every season, you tend to have somebody who's above you at work who's going to, every six months or so, they're going to pull you aside, maybe schedule a 30-minute touch base and tell you, well, here's where you are right now in your career. And they'll critique you. Here are some of your weaknesses. In fact, most of you, if you've been working in some professional setting, you probably have to fill out some sort of performance review, right? You have to your portion is a 360-degree version of that where you have your peers and your managers and people who are under you who are actually critiquing you, right? Strengths and weaknesses. And a lot of those things become qualitative and quantitative, right? This is how you set your goals for the next year. And your boss reviews them. You are held accountable to that. And if you make those goals, then you get a bonus. And if you don't make those goals, you can actually become put on probation. That's how it works in the corporate world, right? That's accountability. Who, who critiques... The way you work, the amount that you work. Who critiques your speech? Who critiques the nature of your relationships with other people? How many people do you have critiquing your decisions in your life, your thoughts? How many people critique the way you raise your children, your marriages? As many accountability leaders as I may have, no one is going to keep me more in line than my friends. Friends, i got to tell you this. I have a lot of accountability in my life, but no one is going to keep me more in line than my friends because we eat together, we talk together, oh, we fight together, we argue, we suffer together, we have lots of shape, shaping, shared experiences together. Nothing shapes me more in accordance with God's word more than my friends. These are the people you're going to go on vacation with. And even on vacation, sometimes you fight because they're speaking into your life there, right? I married one of those people. Very, very intimate. Nothing shapes you more than that. Now, when you think about a community like this, it's very radical. Very radical, but it's very tough to break into. If you've seen a community like this in the church, very radical. It stands out, very visible, tough to break into. The fact is, most of you are part of some group that formed years ago before you even entered into this church. This church is around four years old. Most of you have circles of friendships that, that have formed years ago. It's very, very hard to break into that group. Then there are other groups in this church that are very, very open, very, very inviting, right? But it's also very, very loose, not very radical. So you never really get past superficial, uh, you know, the cover aspects, right? What's on the surface. There's little to no accountability, a true Christian community is radical because it is shaping on one hand, but it's also very, very open. It's inviting. It's accountable on one hand, but it's inviting other people into that accountability on the other. You have to want that. We all need it. You have to want that. Look, verse 1, keep on loving each other as brothers. 
Verse 2, do not forget to entertain strangers. Let strangers in, right? I'm going to say that in a different way. In the Greek, what the author is saying is, I want you to work at Philadelphia. That's what he says. Verse 2, I want you to work at Philoxenia. I want you to love strangers. In other words, verse 1 says, work like crazy at those with who are already in your life. Work like crazy. Stay close to them. Stay close. Work at it. Continue to work at that. People that you know deeply, but you also have to work hard at being part of groups with those who are at one point not in your life. Take in guests. Be hospitable. That's another way of translating it. Be hospitable to those who are strangers. In the ancient times, that word hospitality was actually a virtue and a value. Right? To, to the degree that if you, if you were a guest at a wedding and you didn't like the way the wedding went, you could sue the couple that invited you. That's how it was. Work at Philoxenia, being hospitable. And on one hand, it's great to be a part of community where you're, where you're practicing love, uh, loving one another. But on the other hand, each of you should be inviting other people, letting other people in. Maybe that means creating more circles. Maybe that means being a part of multiple circles. You see that? Maybe it's part of expanding the circle that you have. Whatever it is, work at it, he says. On one hand, yes, you want to break into certain groups, but the text is also saying it's even better to just open up yourself to others, people that you don't naturally connect with. That's radical. That's radical. You know why it's so radical in the ancient world? In the ancient times, your social culture was all about climbing ladders. It was all about climbing ladders. So you only invited people that you were attracted to, people that could help you get ahead. Not very different from today, right? Not very different from today's society. You made friends and you connected with people, even in the church, people who can get ahead, maybe get you ahead socially, maybe get you ahead even in church government, perhaps. It's still like that today. The church is not supposed to be like that. It's supposed to open up to people who may not be able to give anything back. That's what he's saying. He says, be hospitable, love strangers, love newcomers. That means if you're a newcomer at this church, if you're a visitor at church, you should be loved by the people around you who've been here. It doesn't mean you necessarily are going to trust one another equally, automatically, overnight. Of course not. That's going to take time. But you can commit to them. You can invite them. In the ancient times, to invite somebody into your home, it was to have a meal with somebody is to engage in something that's so intimate. You know why? Because it takes time to prepare a meal. They didn't have microwaves back then. They didn't have ovens back then. Not like, not like the ones we have. It took time to prepare a meal. There were no refrigerators like what we have today. It takes time and investment, resources. So to invite somebody in for a dinner, a meal, especially when there was no electricity back then. So the night is quick. It gets dark quick. You only have a few amount of hours after you're done your work. So to share that time, to share that space, to share that resource with somebody else, you've got to love them. You've got to love them. It's intentional. It's an intimate experience. Right? You can commit to that. You certainly can commit to that overnight. Now, this is not a community. What this means, essentially, this is not a community where you have to prove yourself before people warm up to you. Verse 2. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. 
for by doing so, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Clearly, this was a reference. He's not saying that somebody you're working with right now, somebody you're helping, could be an angel. At least I don't think that's what it's saying here. What he's, it's clearly a reference to Genesis chapter 18, first book in the Bible, when Abraham brought in three strangers out to be angels. Now, what does this mean? It means you don't just love people who are able to get you somewhere. You don't just love people who can get you ahead. You don't just love people who can repay whatever love you've shown them. Right? That's not how you meet angels, essentially. That's what he's saying. Sacrificial giving, sacrificial service, that leads to angels. That's what he's saying in some people, in a sense. Verse 3 says, remember those who are in prison as if, they're, as if you are a fellow prisoner. And remember those who are mistreated as if you yourselves are suffering. In other words, social justice is a responsibility. The Greek word mistreated here is the word oppressed. So he's saying, you see people who are oppressed? Suffer with them. Suffer with them. That sounds like social justice, right? Speak for the weak. So speak out for those who don't have a voice. Then he goes to verse 4. He says, marriage should be honored by all. For God is the judge of the adulterer and all who are sexually immoral. All the sexually immoral. In other words, don't have sex outside of marriage. God will judge the adulterer. The word adultery focuses on married people, right? But then he says, God will judge all the sexually immoral. In other words, don't have sex outside of marriage, right? Because the word, the sexually immoral, that word in Greek is porneia. Porneia, right? It's where we get the word pornography, right? He's focusing on sex outside of marriage, the marriage bed pure. He says, keep the marriage bed pure. Think about this. This is radical. Why is this in here? Because it seems kind of like a non sequitur. Why is it in here? I'll tell you why. This is radical in ancient times. You know why? Because women were regarded in ancient times as having no status. You did whatever you wanted with women. That's why. And here the author is saying, I want you to respect women. I want you to love the women too. There's nothing more liberal in those ancient times than the church. Nothing more liberal in thought and philosophy of life. He says, I want you to respect, I don't want you to stop treating women as objects. I, want you to, I don't want you to see them as without dignity because they are full, they have equal dignity as you. The author is saying the church respects women as equal dignity, dignity. Don't just use women. Don't just use each other. Keep the marriage bed pure. In ancient times, uh, there's a saying that the pagans were promiscuous with their bodies and stingy with their money. But Christians are promiscuous with their money and stingy with their bodies. They were poor, and yet they still gave. Do you know that? They were poor because they would transfer their poverty. They would accept the poverty of others, become even more poor to help other people advance. Radical society. Radical society. The ancient times and the modern times, radically selfish. The church is to be radically selfless. Today, sex is used to build yourself up. You know why? Because you are at the center. Today, in our Western world, your wealth is used to build yourself up. You know why? Because you are at the center. Christians, even sex is used to build up the community. You know why? 
because marriage is the most intimate form of community. And so they treat it with care, reverence, and awe. You know how you worship God? You treat the community as brothers and sisters. Reverence and awe. That's what he's saying. That means that husbands loving your wives, husbands, you view your wives as a sister, as a child of God, sometimes broken, many times broken, and yet redeemed and redeemable. Full dignity. You see that? Today, wealth is used to build yourself up because you are at the center. Christians, they use their wealth to build other people up. You know why? Because the gospel, Jesus Christ, their king, God, their father and king at the center. The gospel makes you radically unselfish. Here's a question for you. What is speaking into you to influence you? What influences you? What things are you drawing from your community? Think about your central community in life. What values are you drawing from them? Look at radical community. This is offered. We receive it. You don't have to be in a certain place. We're here because we've come as we are, right? It's by grace. Look at the radical community of the gospel. It's powerful, incredibly powerful. Now, it's powerful. How do you get it? How do you get the power for it? Verse 5, he says, this is the key, okay? He says, keep your lives free. Uh, keep your lives free uh, from your love of money. And be content with what you have because God said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. How do you become more loving? How do you become more hospitable? How do you become more generous with your wealth? Notice here, the author doesn't focus on, uh, well, God said, I want you to, uh, I'm going to give you more than you'll ever need. If you come to me and if you believe in me and trust in me, you will be wealthier beyond your dreams and imagination. So I want you to give now. That's not what he's saying here. There's nothing external here that's promised. In fact, what the author is really saying is there's something internally that has to happen to you to make you so content that you'd be willing to give, give, and give. So that you're no longer anxious if you don't have enough, if you don't feel like you have enough. So that you're no longer craving and addicted to your wealth or your status or your power, whatever it is that wealth and money bring. Verse 5 and 6, he says, what is that thing? What is that internal thing that has to happen to you? You have to come to the you have to come to the promise. You have to come to the explicit resurrection reality of never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's what you have to come to. That's a reminder from the Old Testament. Even that, he goes back to the Old Testament over and over. Deuteronomy and Joshua, you see that phrase. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Verse 7, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. That's a reminder from the Old Testament Psalms. So you have Deuteronomy, the laws of Moses. You have Joshua, who, who, who took over as a leader from Moses. You have the Psalms. Verse 7 says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. What is he saying? If you put this all together, he says, you've heard the leaders. You've heard the Father speak. You've seen Deuteronomy. You've seen Moses speak. You've heard. You've read it. You've studied of Moses. You've memorized Moses. You've heard the words of Joshua. You've heard the narratives and the stories. You knew this. You've read the Psalms. You've seen the fathers and the leaders speaking to you. Remember this, he says. Remember the leaders who spoke the word of God to you, who spoke the gospel to you. What are they saying? They're saying this. What the author is saying is this. 
You can look at the Bible all your life. Trust me. I've been in the church since I can remember. I've been a leader in the church all through college, all through high school, my younger years. I've been a part of Christian camps, served at Christian camps all through high school. I looked at the Bible all my life, and I still miss the gospel. And I know that if I could do that, I know you could miss the gospel, looking at the Bible all your life. What the author is saying here is that you can look at the Bible all your life, Deuteronomy, Joshua, the Psalms, and you can miss the gospel, and you can miss the promises of God. Verse 8, look at your leaders. Look at your fathers. Look at their faith that overcame great odds, great suffering. And he says, I want you to imitate that. I want you to live that out. Verse 9, don't be carried away then by all kinds of strange teachings. Be strengthened by grace. Don't be strengthened by your performance. Don't be strengthened by your status. Don't be strengthened by your wealth. Don't be carried away by your ability to obey and be a morally good person. Don't be carried away by your ability to observe and, and do perform rituals well. Don't be carried away by your ability to live a clean-cut life and a wholesome life in that way. He says, I want you to be strengthened by grace, and I want you to live that out. The author is saying this, nothing is going to cure your craving for money, for status, for power. You see, your craving for money, status, and power, it makes you cling on to your wealth, and it makes you very, very unhospitable, inhospitable to strangers. That's what it makes you. Very closed. You become a hoarder of wealth. The author is saying nothing is going to cure your craving for more. Nothing is going to cure your anxieties more unless you are saved by grace. Otherwise, you're going to constantly be working, constantly be performing. You're going to be riddled with anxiety on one hand and anger or bitterness on the other hand because things aren't working out for you. You're going to be consumed with yourself, self-absorption. There'll be no power, there'll be no space left in your life to love other people. That's what he's saying. What does it mean to be saved by grace? You have to trust. You have to trust God when he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. We said very early, very much earlier, we said, that craving for wealth, you're looking for the richness that you have in God. He is the rest. He is the security. He is the power. He is the beauty. He is the security. He is the brilliance. That's what, we, that's what we're longing for. That's why there is that craving in the first place, you see? And so you're constantly going to be working and performing. You're going to be riddled with anxiety and bitterness and self-absorption. There's never going to be any power in your life to love other people, Right? And the reason why is because in the heart, at the heart of you, we, want, we don't want to be alone. There is nothing in life more devastating than being alone. Nothing in life. We are anxious creatures. There's a secular philosopher, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize, uh, named Ernest Becker. Um, his book was actually out of print for a while, and recently there's been a resurgence of his book, and it's been back in print. The denial of death basically says we all know one day we're going to die. And death is the ultimate aloneness. This is a secular writer. He won the Pulitzer Prize for this piece of work. It was a seminal uh, writing. He says we're all going to die one day. And in the death, death is what? The ultimate loneliness. The ultimate aloneness. The ultimate separation. 
And he says, we're doing everything that we can to either ignore the fact that we're going to die or try to prevent it. That's what we're doing. And that's why we have a craving for money. And that's why we have a craving for sex because then there's conquest. Then there's accomplishment. Because if I can do that... You know, the Epic of Gilgamesh, ancient Sumerian writing, some of you may have read it in college or high school, right? Written around the same time uh, Abraham was alive, right? The Epic of Gilgamesh, you have, you have Gilgamesh and his desire is to become immortal. And uh, it's unfortunate because he dies at the end, right? And all you have is a piece of writing on what we call the lapis lazuli in this tablet that says, here is Gilgamesh who lived. That's all we have left, you see? We are constantly working to prevent that which is inevitable in our lives, the ultimate loneliness, the ultimate aloneness. You know what? In your life, you're going to suffer. You say, well, I've got lots of friends. Get older. Have family. Your friends start to dissipate. Unless you have this radical power in you and unless you have a radical Christian community around you, your friends will ultimately dissipate. It may not be something tragic, it may be just something that's natural. And even your family, if you're clinging to your family, you say, well, I have a family and we are tight. They will leave you too one day. Didn't you leave yours? They will leave you too. And one day, either because you go first, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, it's a sunny day. One day, either you're going to go first or your friends are going to go first. Somebody's going to go. You're going to be alone. That's the reality. That is the truth. No one can be there. That's the thing. It's, not, it's, it's like an evil, but it's a reality. No one can be there. Only God. At the heart of the universe, we said in the beginning, only God. And if his glory, his brilliance, his power, his beauty is not at the center of your life, then you are alone today. How do you know? Then God, when he promises, that's why it's so profound when he says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I am all you need. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. How do you know? On the cross, there was darkness. On the cross, Jesus Christ, suffering on the cross. And when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, what he's saying is, you have left me. You have forsaken me. I am separated from you. I am alone. God left his son for dead on the cross. He left him, die. He left him to die on the cross. The son and the father, inseparable. I and the father are one. On the cross, he said, we are separated. You know what hell is? The ultimate aloneness. We think of hell as a kid. We say it's a fire and it's brimstone and it's like, it's like this crazy heat and stuff like that. Hell is the ultimate separation from God. Some of us are living like that now. And lives are miserable and filled with anxiety and filled with anger because of it. You know why? Because you're separated now. When God is promising that never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Why? Because God and the Father, inseparable, I and the Father are one, torn apart. God's royal presence had departed from Jesus and let him die on the cross. Jesus Christ 
took our cosmic aloneness, the aloneness that we deserve, the aloneness that we chose when we said, I will not obey, the aloneness that we chose every time we say, I will not obey. That's the aloneness that we deserve. And yet we receive the presence of God. We receive the royal presence and promise, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You know why? Because Jesus Christ said, I have been forsaken on the cross. Do you see that? What's the promise of the Great Commission? Jesus Christ sends out, right? He says, I want you 12, I want my disciples not to huddle together and just be themselves. He sends them out, he says, number one. And he basically says what? What's the promise? Lo and behold, lo, I am with you always until the very end of the world. Never will I leave you. That's the promise. It's kind of weird, right? It's kind of ironic. There's, a, there's an irony there. He says, when you live out the Great Commission and spread out, you will never be alone. We think, but I don't want to be apart. I don't want to be apart from the things that I'm comfortable with. He says, when you live out the Great Commission faithfully, you will never be alone. Some of you are alone, and you are lonely. You know why? You've abandoned the Great Commission. You've abandoned that promise. That's what's happened. Jesus Christ, arms stretch out. You know what he's doing on the cross? He's loving his brothers, loving his sisters, at, not at the risk of his life. The author of Hebrews says, I want you to do this at the risk of your life. He's saying, I'm doing this at the cost of my life. He's loving his brothers. He's saying, you are strangers. And he's showing hospitality to you. He's opening his arms up. He's making himself vulnerable. He's saying, I want you in. I've loved you as brothers, even though you are strangers. We are worth it. God had nothing to gain from us. We cannot repay the debt that he has paid for us. He's poured out his resources on us. You know why? Because he's poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ. Because of his love, because of God's grace, Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate injustice. That's why he says we can cry out when we see injustice. That's why he says that. That's why we have to fight injustice. I'm going to close with this. To the degree that you see Jesus taking your cosmic aloneness for you, to the degree that you will trust that he will never, ever leave you alone. Actually, the actual Hebrew, the Greek there, it's not just never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I didn't say it. It's it's, it's a series of nevers. Never, 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 never will I ever, 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 ever forsake you. That's what he says, basically, over and over and over in that line. To the degree that you trust that, you will have freedom. You will have courage. It will humble you. But it will free you and give you the courage to take part and contribute to this radical community that Jesus Christ has established. Do it. Let's pray.